I was uh, 18 years old when a simple question changed my life. I had signed up to go on an international mission trip because it was part of a training program that I was doing. I just finished up my freshman year here at North Greenville University, and it seemed like one of those things, if you're going to go into ministry, at some point in your life, you have to go overseas. You kind of have to check the box and say, you've been there, you've done that. So I did. And I ended up in Tokyo, Japan that summer. And I remember I was at Hitsobachi University. We were having an English corner for any of these students who wanted to learn English. And we were the professional English speakers. Now, if you're from South Carolina, that really does not qualify so well. But they let us anyway. We did this kind of drama knowing that obviously words and vocabulary were going to be kind of stumbling blocks. So it was, it was more of a... a uh, just a, a quiet, still kind of deal where we were trying to display the love of Christ as we were developing relationships with these students and having these conversations. So we kind of put on this somewhat short drama of what it must have been like when the Roman soldiers put Jesus on the cross. And there was a real awkward moment when the person who was playing Jesus stretched out his hands like this, and, and then all of a sudden somebody started punching him in the hands, that all the students started dying laughing. It was really awkward because I'd never been in an experience like that where somebody was putting Jesus on the cross and they thought it was funny. So afterwards I get into my uh, English corner and speaking to the different students and there was a student named Yohei who this was his interpretation. Why did you just punch the guy in the hands? Punch him in the face. I said, no, they were nailing his hands. Why would you nail somebody's hands? And I said, you know that's about Jesus, don't you? And then this question, three words, changed my life. Who is Jesus? Yo, hey, what did you say? He goes, who, who is Jesus? Is he somebody important that I should know? And everything changed. You have the opportunity with a brief moment to answer that question, what would you say? I, I tried to say that he was the son of God who came to take away our sins. I, I tried to say that he was the king of kings and the Lord of all lords. I was trying to say that he is who all history has been waiting for and who all mankind and history is moving towards. And, and I had to try to explain to him that like, he's my absolute everything in the centerpiece of my life. Like I tried to do those things, but I couldn't get over the question. I walked around that night and saw the skylights of Tokyo and realized that millions of people in that city, if they died that night, were going to go to spend eternity in hell forever. And it changes you. The next summer, I took a group of my friends and from this university, and we started backpacking through the mountains of China. We were taking Jesus films and Bibles and trying to smuggle them into people. Half of our team got caught. It was awesome. Not so awesome for our parents, but it, we thought it was pretty awesome because we made it out. Everything about me started changing. I'm trying to bring all these other people around to do this. And then the following summer, I did something even crazy. went to a different mission field, way out there. Way out there. Japan, first summer. Uh, China, second summer. Third summer, I went to the international mission field of a place called Tennessee. Okay? Uh, I was in Jefferson City, Tennessee. I was working at Centrifuge at Carson Newman University. My job there that summer as a college student, I was the missions mobilizer, taught middle school Bible study, and I played bass in the worship band. And a lot of times I would tell that story about Yohei. 
And I had, since I was kind of the mission mobilizer, it was just a centrifuge. I was the only one who had a track time that would go and do missions. And so we would go out and do a backyard Bible club in a neighborhood near the university. And there was this kid every single week named Rodney. He was eight years old. And I promise you, I thought he was trying to burn the whole world down. He was angry, he was frustrated, he bucked up against every type of authority, you name it. And one day we tried to sit down and do a Bible study, and he would typically try to literally hurt, kick, slap, punch any of our leaders or teenagers that were there. And one day we give this Bible study, we're trying to explain something to him and tell him who Jesus is, and he asked me this question in Jefferson City, Tennessee, three words, who is Jesus? And if that shocks you today, I hope it sticks with you. That there are people on the other side of the world in Tokyo, Japan, who do not know who Jesus is. But there's also people right around you that don't know who he is. Maybe they know his name, but they don't know who he truly is. They think he's a historical figure. They think maybe he's blamed all the stuffy people in their life trying to take away all their fun. And what the opportunity is for every single one of us today is, are you willing to risk it all so that others may be able to get the answer to the question, who is Jesus? I remember when I came back from that Japan mission trip, it was so shocking to me, all the different delicacies they had me eat in Japan, from raw fish to octopus to stuff I didn't even know, don't tell me what it is, I'll just try it, right? All these amazing things, none of that stuff ever made me sick. None of those stuff ever made me feel like I was going to vomit. None of those things ever made me weak. I'll tell you when I got sick was when we got back out of Japan, and I went on a Saturday to the Denver Mall, and I looked at all the people my age and realized what months before I had been caught up in, and that's what made me want to vomit that day. That's what shut me down because I saw a picture of myself and so many people in this culture that are throwing their lives away. Stuff that just doesn't matter. When there is a mission out there that Jesus Christ is calling us into, that he will do, the nations will come to know him with or without us. The question is this, will you accept the invitation to be a part of what he's doing? This morning when we were in our Bible studies, we looked at the character of Esther, right? We looked at this, this picture of this woman in the Old Testament, right? The last book in the history of the Bible uh, at the Old Testament section where she risked her life so that there are people that could be saved. And then we look at the person of Jesus who risked his life, obviously, so that we could be saved. And yet now the call is this, will we be like Esther and lay our lives down? We'll be like Jesus who laid his life down. I want to invite you to turn with me to one of my favorite passages of Scripture tonight. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 36. Passage of Scripture that if you've been in church for any time, you know. It's about a time when Jesus walked on the water. Peter attempted, and a lot of craziness ensued, right? What you need to know about before we read this passage is, Jesus had just done something rather miraculous. His, well, his cousin, John the Baptist, had just been beheaded for doing the work of the Lord. Not only his cousin, his forerunner, the, the reality of what Christ's path was taking him to was setting in. And he was trying to get some alone time, and he didn't get it. 5,000 people showed up. 5,000 men, their wives, their children, and they stayed with him for so long that all of a sudden someone said, we need to feed them and send them away. And Jesus goes, you give them something to eat. 
And in a weird kind of description in this passage, as you know, he breaks the, the five loaves of two fish, he gives it out, and everybody eats and satisfied. It's really interesting. In Matthew, it says he told them to sit down in the grass, even though they were on the outskirt of the community. Mark goes a little bit further when he shares it, it says he instructed them to sit on the green grass. That's a weird detail to include in a story. Who cares where he told them to sit? That's not a big deal. They told him to sit down. Why do you have to tell us there's green grass? Why do you have to make sure we know that he makes us lie down in green pastures? Why do you have to tell us that the next story over is he leads us beside, what, still waters? It's almost as if, like, Jesus is fulfilling Psalm 23 or something crazy. He, um, 5,000 men, their wives, children, just had a meal and were satisfied. What do you do in your ministry? You keep them around. What did Jesus do? Send them home. Hey, hey guys, 12 disciples, come on. Um, I want you to go out too because we've we got somewhere else we've got to get. There's some people on the other side of this water here that need to get hope. And we're going to go give it to them. And look what happens in verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. They're trying to go this way, and there's, there's actual wind coming, pushing them back, right? And in the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 and 6 in the morning, by the way. So tonight you can say, I'm going to sleep in the fourth watch of the night, you crazy kids. Okay, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. To which for the disciples, I'd say, then stop looking like a ghost walking on the water, right, okay? Here's this picture. Jesus dismisses the crowds. Miraculous things taking place. In a kind of unique way, he goes, guys, go ahead on uh, before me. I I'll catch up. You want us to walk? No, get in the boat and I'll catch up. Um, you got a boat around here? I said I'll catch up. Get going, guys. Now he sent them out there that night. Now the disciples have had another experience like this where one time Jesus was in the boat and a storm hit. And he, he could calm the waves, but this time Jesus sitting in the boat. He's sitting them out on their own. And so what's crazy about this moment is that he tells them to get into the waters, tells them to get in the boat and says, I'm going to stay up here and I'm going to pray and I'll catch up with you, which is kind of crazy here because my question is this. I, I don't know about the meteorologists in your area, but some of the ones in my area are my sworn arch enemies. You know why? Because they always try to get everybody in my life like really upset about a storm that never, ever happens, right? And then sometimes they say nothing's going to happen and all of a sudden everything blows up, right? The, the meteorologists, sometimes I know they work hard and sometimes they get it. Sometimes they, they don't get it. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus, when he put them in the boat that night, knew that a storm was coming? Yes or no? I do too. So does that bother you? Hey guys, get in the boat. This will be a good ride. <laughs> like, huh? You coming with us? I mean, last time I got in a boat, everything got crazy, and you calmed it. Nah, guys, you got this. I'll catch up. What, you got a moped over there? Like, what are you doing, right? Like, how are you going to catch up? Just get in the boat. And this is important for us to see tonight because 
Jesus intentionally led his disciples into a storm for which he would save them. He put them in it intentionally. I want you guys to get in the boat. There's some people on the other side of the water that we're going to need to reach, and I want you to get in there and get in there now, and I'll catch up. And then the storm hit. You see in these moments that Jesus was not indecisive about the directions of their lives. For anybody who's saying, Jesus, what's your will for my life? He's not going, I don't know. Get in the boat. Go to that side. Trust me. I'll catch up. Don't worry. He points us in places. And this is something you need to hear. Very, very important to this passage. The disciples obeyed what Jesus told them and they ended up in trouble anyway. It's not like they disobeyed and didn't get in the boat and the storm hit where they were on the shore. They got in the boat, exactly what he said, and they got out there on the water and everything fell apart. Have you ever obeyed God in your life and still wound up in trouble? There's two types of troubles in this world. The one is that you have disobeyed God and got in trouble, and one is you've obeyed God and you've got in trouble. And I'm just here to tell you this. One is God is proud of and on your side and going to help get you out. And one is you made this bed, you're going to have to lie in it sometimes. These are consequences that come place. Now, here, here's the deal. What's crazy about this is we know he's calmed the storm. We know that he's still the waters. He, know he, we met, he met their needs on the green grass. Can he not address this need as well? And so when this is happening, he's on a mountain overlooking this body of water where they are, right? So if you will, he's kind of in an elevated position from where they are, right? So he can see, in, in theory, he can look down and see the boat making the progress from point A to point B, and all of a sudden seeing the wind start pushing towards them. And what is he doing on top of the mountain? He is he's praying. What do you think he's praying for? I think he's praying for these guys, right? <laughs> Father, um, these guys just experienced this, and they got to do something so incredible. They actually got to feed 5,000 men and women and children. And man, I don't want this to go to their head. I don't want them proud to consume them. We've got to make sure they stay humble and stay dependent. You ready to bring that storm? We, we showed them that I can lead them and make them lie down in green pastures. We've got to make sure they understand I can, I can call them the still waters. And so uh, let the storm come. And he sees it. Thunder, lightning, wind, rain, whatever. And then he starts walking. And, folks, this is pretty crazy. The Sea of Galilee is over eight miles wide. Jesus is booking it, right? And he's, he's, I mean, he's getting after it. Comes down the mountain, they're in the boat, going on hours, and all of a sudden, what do they see? But, but this is what's crazy. While the disciples had lost sight of Jesus, Jesus had never lost sight of them. He saw them exactly where they were. From his elevated perspective, Jesus always knew where his disciples were and what they needed from him. He could see from up high where they were, what was going on, and what needed to take place. And I say that to help all of you right now who feel like you're in the midst of some type of situation and you don't know, and you go, I can't see where God is in this, but can you trust that he sees you? Job, if you've ever read this book in the Old Testament, uh, it's about a guy who apparently didn't do anything wrong, but a lot of wrong stuff happened to him. 
And he doesn't know that there's this supernatural event going on around his life where Satan is trying to break him and God is trying to sustain him in this moment. And in Job chapter 23, the craziest thing is he goes, I go forward and I can't see him. I go backwards, I can't find him. Go right, go left, I can't find where he is, but I know that he knows the way that I take. What's he saying? Sometimes I feel like I can't see God, but can I trust that he still sees me? Students, there can be some moments in your life where you feel like he has left you. I promise he has never left you. He, is, he will never fail you. He will never forsake you. And if you feel like you don't see him, trust that he can see you. Jesus is at this elevated perspective. He can see it all. He sees it very, very clearly. And so it says the disciples saw him walking on the sea. and They were terrified. This is not like, I'm a little jumpy. This is like, oh my goodness, I thought the waves were bad. There's some kind of coast coming on the water about to eat our soul. What are we going to do, right? And, and here he comes. So he says, take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. And then this is where it gets really interesting. Peter answered him. you got to imagine there's a lot of wind going on. I mean, like, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come on. So Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water. And he came to Jesus. Now, folks, can you just imagine all the other 11 disciples in the boat go, here goes old Pete again. <laughs> He's going to hit this water and sink like a stone. Hey, Jesus, if that's you, you tell me to come on out there. Jesus said, come on, buddy. I'm right here. Okay, okay, I can do this. Do, do you jump in, right? Do you tiptoe in? What does he do, right? He, he, he puts his, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And I can imagine John going, this is going to be awesome. Somebody get their camera phone. Okay, come on. Like, get this. Like, we got to make sure we capture this, right? He puts that water out and, oh, I can feel wetness, but I'm not sinking. And he, he takes another step, and he takes another step, and Jesus is going, come on, come on, come on. And the disciples are like, I cannot believe Peter's actually doing this. We're going, we really, what, what, what's happening? I mean, can we believe what we're seeing right here? He's walking on the water, verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus let him fall down into the water and waited five minutes before he started his rescue party. I'm oh, sorry, I, I thought that's what it said for a second. Hold on a second. Jesus, frustrated with how often Peter was a complete idiot, just allowed him to sink to the bottom. My bad, let me try again. Jesus, tired of all the disciples, decided to throw over the entire boat and just watch all of them swim to shore. Is that what it says? Jesus immediately, he didn't hesitate. I'm going to be straight with you. I'm going to be like, I ain't going to let you die, but I'm going to let you just gurgle a little bit, okay? Like, I'm tired of you, Pete. I'm really tired. I'm just, every time I'm, like, come on, man. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to you, oh, you a little faith. Why did you doubt? Come on. You were there. When they got in the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat, they did what? It says worshipped him. Um, just so you know, typically the only person you worship is somebody you believe to be God in the flesh. Right? That only makes sense to me. 
those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. By the way, that's not where they set out for, by the way. They were going to Bethsaida. That was the plan. Go here. Storm took them, and they went over there. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent all around that region and brought to all him who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. And ministry goes on in a city to which apparently the storm moved them to. Something outside of their control redirected their paths, and ministry went forward. Now, um, I know that probably... Peter was ragged for a long time. Look at you, you sank in the water, right? And I'd also go, hey, at least I knew what it was like at the bottom of my feet to feel a little bit wet, right? The rest of y'all were stuck in the boat. I at least had a moment, okay? I had a moment where I went out there and I felt what life was like, and then, yeah, I sank, but so quickly, wasn't it? I mean, have you ever felt a moment in your life where you were going so well for Jesus, and in a moment, everything went off the rails? I have. Man, I'm doing exactly what he's called me to do. I'm right in the zone, and then all of a sudden, boom, everything changed. I mean, the exhilaration of following Jesus can be robbed by the distraction of something lesser. What took place here was Peter had something to experience that was unlike anything any of us had ever done in our lives. And, yeah, he can talk about that until he can't talk about it anymore. But he didn't get to continue. You know why? Because the wind, the waves, fear. And what is Jesus saying to him? Come to me. And Peter is distracted by so many other things. The reality is this, is that while this story did happen between Jesus and Peter, this is a very easy picture to describe of what often happens with us. Especially at something as significant as, say, church camp. Man, this is awesome. I'm making progress. Look what you're calling me out to do. Man, we just saw this happen, and we saw this happen. If it's you, come on. I'm going to come to you, Jesus. Just tell me to come. Come on. All right, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm making progress. Oh, no. And in a moment, it's taken away. In a brief moment of distraction, something grabs your attention, and you begin to sink. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because it's exactly what happened after last year's church camp, did it not? Man, you were booking it. Man, you were making progress. Man, you were seeing things happen. You know what Jesus was calling you to do, and then something took your attention off. And you were gone. This is what's crazy about the situation with them being on water, by the way. If you don't know this about Peter and Jesus and all the guys that were in the boat, they were ethnically Jewish men. And throughout the Old Testament, throughout other historical things, especially back in those days, the sea was something to be terrified of. The ocean, you just people go out to the ocean to die. It was scary. I mean, some of you were like, I don't like getting in, the, you know, I, I, I'm scared of getting in the pool. I'm scared of getting in the ocean. I have a lady in my church who's 86 years old who has never been baptized because she's scared to death of water. She came to me one day, she says, Pastor Travis, I've never been baptized, but I feel like I need to do this, but I've just been terrified. I won't even get in the bathtub. 
And, and I'm, I'm struggling because I'm like, what to say? Then this is what she said to me. She goes, but if Jesus would go to the cross for me, I'll go to the baptistry for him. I said, all right, here's my deal, though. I have never lost anybody in the baptistry. I promise you, okay? I'll get you back up, right? But, she, but for me, she was terrified, just absolutely terrified of it. So she's breathing heavy, and I said, come on, come on, I got you, right? Okay, we're going to do this, right? She's like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. She, and I said, why do you want to do this? She goes, I want to inspire other white hairs out there that maybe they can follow too. I said, come on, girl, come on. And so, so this beautiful moment of baptizing her, saying it's scary. And it just reminded me that throughout the entire Old Testament, the water was something to be terrified of. I mean, this is what's crazy is we've been thinking about Jesus as the matchless one, right? Because if you go all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures, a lot of people will talk about how God created all things. But you need to know this, that actually when the world was seen as chaotic, you know what it was described as? Waters. That God was separating the waters from the sky and the waters. He was separating the waters so that there could be land because well, it says in verse 2 that the Spirit was hovering over the waters in chaos. Chaos is where you would go out to die. People would go out to the water and they would never return. And, th and then you go throughout the scriptures and you find something that when God decided to bring his judgment on the entire earth, what did he bring? Water. Water that would come down on the ark and know what was there and the only way that they would survive is as God's wrath would rain upon the earth the only way is that if you were protected by some piece of wood that was getting the wrath for you instead here they are making it through the water and waiting for the water to subside because they know water just means death and you go to different places and what you find is that when the Egyptians are on the Israelites tail and the Red Sea lies in front of them, what happens? God causes the waters to what? Part. Because they would die in that water. So God makes a way for them to walk through it on the dry land. Then you fast forward over to the book of Joshua, and what you find is that actually one day God's people are there and they get across a particular river called the Jordan River. And what happens? The waters part at the Jordan River so that God's people and God's presence can go through, led by the Ark of the Covenant, representative of what God's presence was. Then you continue to go on throughout Scripture, and what you find is there was a prophet one day who said, you know what? I'm going to call you to a people. You see these Ninevites over here? I hate them, God. Yeah, that's who I'm calling you to go to. What direction is Nineveh again, God? That way. I'll go this way. And he goes, oh yeah? Why don't you get in a boat, buddy? And so he gets in a boat. And what happens is the storm gets so bad, they toss him over the edge. And all of a sudden, what happens? He gets swallowed by a big what? Big fish. And a lot of people go, ah, oh, the fish was God's wrath. The fish was God's grace. You know why? He's going to die in the sea, and God says, no, something's got to take care of him and get him to shore. And so all of a sudden, he's going to his watery grave, and he's spit out while the waters part, and he hits the ground. And God says, do you want to go to Nineveh? I'm going to ask one more time. If that's what you want me to do, oh Lord, yes, okay, right? The water was a place where you came to die, and at every single section, there was this moment of when the waters would part and life would come forth. So it makes a little bit more sense of when Jesus is baptized in a particular river called the Jordan River, where the waters once were parted for Joshua and his crew to walk through. If you've ever had the opportunity to see somebody, if you think about when somebody gets baptized, right, you go down. And baptism is, by the way, it's a beautiful symbol that's supposed to happen after salvation, right? You get saved, and then you want to tell everybody, let me tell you what is a picture of what happened. I was dead in my sin, but God brought me back to life. And you know what happens every time when I baptize somebody and I bring them back up? The waters part over their face. 
plunged to a death, but coming back to life and they can breathe again. It's this beautiful symbol of what takes place. And so what does Jesus do? He goes and gets baptized in the water where the same place that the waters parted and the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, led them through. And then we get to this moment where Jesus is coming to his disciples in which they think is going to be their watery grave, and Peter sinks. And what happens? Jesus reaches down and brings him back up. See how even far this goes, if it's from Genesis, it goes actually all the way to the book of Revelation. Because you know that it describes in Revelation that when uh, John sees a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the what was no more? The sea was no more. You know what heaven is going to be like? The absence of anything that feels like chaos. The ridding of anything that feels like dangerous or death. Because Jesus Christ has removed it from us all. This picture of what's taking place in this moment while Jesus walks on this water is changing everything. And Jesus will use any means necessary to redirect you to where you need to be. If it's over the waters, if it's through the waters, if it's through any obstacle, he will use any means necessary to redirect you to where you need to be. It's absolutely amazing to me that he uses circumstances, and apparently the path was to go to Bethsaida, and they ended up in Gennesaret. Here is literally a storm that took them off course, but apparently it wasn't off course. It was God's will in the midst of it. Some of you have had plans for a long time and something just changed and you want to know. And you were saying, God, I wish you would stop this. And what if God is saying, but I'm the one who brought it. Now, now God doesn't bring someone to sin in your life. God's not trying to hurt you. But I do believe what Romans 8.28 says, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. He does not work everything good for everyone, but he does for those who love him and feel called according to his purpose. So my question is tonight, do you love him? Are you feeling called according to his purpose? He literally moved them around. And then what takes place? I want you to go back just for a moment to verse 27. Because as the storm is pushing them to a different direction, and Jesus is tracking with them, and he comes up to them. He says, immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. Don't have fear in your life. I'm I'm here with you right now. But what's what's interesting is, is that if you actually go to the Greek, when he says, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid, it is I, there's actually only two words in the original language that were written down. Uh, These two words sound like this, ego a me. Can y'all say that? Y'all sound like Greek scholars. You did awesome. Okay, ego, a me. Let me tell you what ego means. Ego means I. Can you say I? A me means am. Can you say am? Jesus says, take heart, I am. Take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. And you go, what does that mean? Some of you VBS kids know exactly what it means, don't you? There's this time in the Bible. There's this guy named Moses. He was running from God, doing all kinds of stuff. God wanted to use him, but he wanted to do things in his own way. So he's now in the desert just taking care of some sheep and preparing himself for taking care of some even dumber and smellier sheep later. And what happens is he's going by this bush, and this bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. And he goes, this is interesting. Maybe I should take a picture, right? And he, he comes near to the bush to see what's happening, and the bush starts speaking. He goes, this is unique. This typically does not happen on a Tuesday for me. And he goes, what, what, what do you want me to do, bush? And he goes, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. 
There's not a sign around here. I didn't know that. The bush is talking. Take off the sandals, buddy. He takes off the sandals, and he goes, I'm the God of your fathers, and I'm calling you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. All right, that sounds good, but I've lived with Pharaoh, and you know how many gods he's got? He's got more gods than he's got wives, and he's got a lot of wives, okay? He's got a God of the moon. He's got a God of the sun. He's got a God of the river. He's got a God of the Walmarts. He's got a God of everything, okay? He's literally got a God of everything. So can you tell me what your name is, like what specific God and what general kind of area you take care of? So when I go to him, I'll say, you're the God of the sun, or you're the God of the moon, or you're the God. Which, what is your name? And he goes, I am who I am. I define myself. I'm the self-existent one, and there's not one thing that defines me because I've created it all. You go tell him, I am has sent me to you. And in this moment, Jesus cries out to them and going, are you afraid? Take heart. I am. It is I. You don't have to be afraid. See, the, the, the crazy thing about this moment where Jesus is blowing these Jewish men's mind is realizing this, that if I have to be in a storm, I won't I am with me. If I've got to be in a storm, I want him with me. I want him beside me. I need him coming after me, directing me. And there are going to be storms in your life that are going to come your way, but have courage, even if you are in a certain situation right now because you have obeyed. You're in the right place at the right time, and if the great I am is with you, who is going to be able to stop you? Don't be afraid. Then Peter realizes this. The great I am, the one who calmed the waters. Because I always think about it this way, right? If Jesus is the author, finisher of our faith, if he was the living word causing all things to be, that at one point, in the first few days that the universe ever existed, one day a voice called out and said, Waters part, land appear. And that water go, we, we, we know that voice, we listen to it, right? And when Jesus looks at these waters and said, peace, be still, they go, we've heard that voice before. Yep, we got it. We're still. They knew his voice. Even the wind and the waves obeyed him. And so while Peter was scared of, scared of the waves, what he was missing was the one who could actually calm them that was in there with him. Unfortunately, as we follow Jesus, a lot of times things just like Peter can distract us and cause us off the mark. And Fear of what might happen can rob you from the joy of what could happen. So many of you right now are fearful of the wind and the waves and the things that could happen, the possibilities, the what ifs. And I'm just saying, could it be that the what ifs are going to take you away from the this could happen? I could be a part of this. And I know you've got a list a mile long of all the things that maybe you feel you're calling to do. Maybe it's a simple act of obedience. Maybe all week long you feel like somebody's been messing in your head, talking about surrendering your life to ministry or to missions or to doing something to, to start this or to stop that. And you feel, yeah, but if I do this, this is going to happen. And, and, and how do I know I'm going to be okay? And if I step out there and take the faith, like I know that the fear is in you. And I, I know it's hard to remove that anxiety, but I'm here to tell you that the stuff of you worrying about what if could happen, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss this opportunity to see God move. A friend of mine 
is a pastor who's preached for decades, and he, he told me one time a story of going to an event where he preached to a group like this, of calling young people like yourself to missions and to ministry, calling them to go forward and say, will you risk your life? Will you abandon it all? Do whatever it says. and put you know, So, Lord, you just tell me where to go, and, and I'm in. And he had an incredible invitation that night, and as he left the church, they asked him to stand at the back so everybody could shake his hand as he left. He said the last guy in the vestibule was an 80-year-old man in the back who literally st- waited till everybody left, came up to him and said, that was a good sermon preacher, and just kept shaking his hand and wouldn't let go. Kind of getting awkward. He goes, is there something I can help you with? He goes, I heard a sermon just like that over 60 years ago. He goes, wow, what do you mean? He goes, when I was a teenager, I remember somebody coming in and preaching our church, asking us to abandon all, to surrender our lives, and to do something for Christ, and it impacted me greatly. And my friend says, what did you do with it? He goes, absolutely nothing. I've wasted my life, and I can't get it back. What do I do now? I'm trying to spare you from that tonight. I know you're fearful of what could happen. But I want you to stand for a moment and just go, yeah, but what, what might happen, right? What, what could potentially take place if, if I follow him all the way? And the wind's going to come, but it, it's a shame to be so distracted that you miss what Jesus is inviting you to do. Tonight, in worship service, you're going to get distracted. In church groups, you're going to get distracted. You're going to go home. Some of you are going to be so excited to, to tell somebody about what the Lord is doing in your life. And some of you are going to literally feel like somebody's dumping cold water on the fire that God has set in your heart as soon as you walk through the door of your house. I get it. I understand it. Some of you are like, man, these church group friends are pretty good. But when I go back home, what's, what, I'm, I'm going to feel the pull, right? You know what the Lord's calling you to do, but are you going to be distracted and fall away from what he has called you to do? So let me ask you a question. Anybody here ever felt like you just royally messed it up? God's called you to do this, and you just, you just dropped it, right? Just like Peter. This is what is encouraging for me, and I want you to hear this tonight. That Jesus won't even allow our best attempts at sinking to keep him from rescuing us. I love the fact that Jesus doesn't linger. I love the fact that Jesus digs in, pulls him up right away. Says, why did you doubt, man? You're doing awesome. You, you could have kept coming. If anybody here tonight feels like you have messed up royally and you have wasted opportunity after opportunity, I want to remind you tonight that Jesus is in the business of coming and reaching down. All you, he's got to hear from you tonight is the exact same words that Peter said. What did he say as he comes through in verse number 30? When he saw the wind, he was afraid, beginning to sink. He cried out, what? Lord, save me. Tonight, some of you need to make that simple prayer. Lord, save me. I'm sinking. I'm going down, and I need you to rescue me. And you know what he's not going to do? I'll be there in five minutes. He plunges himself into those dangerous waters and he pulls you back up because he is willing to take your place upon a cross of which we deserved. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He has defeated every single one of our enemies. And when you cry out tonight, Lord, save me, he'll pull you out. Even for you Christians that have been playing church and feel like you're getting pulled right now, you go, I'm starting to sing. Cry out, say, Lord, save me. I, I know I've got a saving relationship with you, but save me from all these worldly struggles. Save me from all these anxieties. Like, save me from safe Christianity. Save me tonight, God. 
and he'll do it. So the question for us tonight is pretty simple. Where is Jesus calling you and what might distract you along the way? Where is Jesus calling you? Some of you, he is calling you to the nations. It might be a land like Tokyo, Japan, or it might be to the Rodneys of the Middle Tennessees. Some of you, he may be calling not into vocational ministry where that's your job, but he may be calling you to step up into discipleship and to go further. If you have felt like the last four years of life you have not made any spiritual progress, let's change it. Come on forward. Come on, follow me, he says. Come on, come on, you can do this. Come on, you got it. Come on, just keep coming. Don't get distracted. Come after me, right? Some of you know that the next steps is very simple for you. Some of you need to give your life to Jesus and say, please save me. Some of you need to say, please save me from this addiction, this habit, this sinful thing that has got me entangled. On um, Easter Sunday this year, we had kind of told some folks that we were going to have a baptism party after our service is that night. And um, so we had a couple people that signed up for, to baptize, but we shared the gospel. We had uh, four services that day, three in English, one in Spanish. We've got an Indian church that also meets at our, um, our, our area and, uh, and our campus. And, and so we just said, hey, uh, Easter Sunday, instead of doing anything else, we're just going to take a big portable baptistry in the parking lot. We're just going to have a baptism party. Um, that night, uh, it was an incredible thing as we were just sharing the gospel all day. There were a lot of people who came to church, all decked out in their pastels, ready to get their like family picture. And they ended up receiving the gospel and came back that night to be baptized. That night, we got to baptize 30 people in the parking lot. It's an incredible moment, a wonderful thing happened, right? It's awesome. Great, yep. Number, number 30 we put in the position because we did not know how this was going to work. Um, Matt had been on the news in our Greenville County a few years ago because he was a homeless man who had gotten in so much trouble that he had burned every single bridge in his life and... Um, he only had one thing to his name. It was a bicycle he would drive around downtown Greenville with. And one night around midnight, someone else had stolen a BMW and was driving through downtown at 100 miles per hour and didn't see Matt on that bicycle. The impact was so sudden that it hit Matt and his body went into the ditch and his bicycle and his leg went 100 feet that way. He was bleeding out in the ditch, and for 30 minutes, the EMS tried to find him, and they finally found him in the ditch. They thought he had died numerous times on the way God spared his life. Obviously, there was no recovery for his leg, and then when he went into the hospital and got on pain medication, that did not help a lot of his habits when he got back on the streets. It got so bad that eventually he got to such a rough spot, needing help, went to a center, and then he ended up at our church. And I can remember the Thursday before Easter, me and him sitting down and talking about his story, how he'd grown up in church but never really gotten it. And on that Thursday before Easter, he was ready to follow Jesus and to be baptized. Now, wonderful story, right? Matt's in a wheelchair. He's got one leg. He's a pretty big boy. And... Somehow we had to figure out how to get this thing in there, right? This is how we were going to make this whole thing happen. So Sunday morning, I'm up there, and he's, he's literally, he, he parked his, um, his uh, chair beside the tank, and he's just staring at it. I say, Matt, what you think about it? He goes, I'm trying to think how you and I are going to get in this thing tonight. I said, me too. I said, but I don't know. I said, I watched a lot of wrestling growing up. I'll get you in there somehow, okay? 
And um, he said, okay, okay, okay. So um, beautiful thing, uh, that night after the 29th went down, and then all of a sudden Matt, some of his friends had rolled Matt up, and then he had these little arm um, crutches, and he, he picked up and he walked a couple steps on, on one leg, and then he dropped the crutches, and he's being held by his friends. And he just looks at me, and I'm like, okay, let's do this thing, right? And this was the plan. And um, one, of, one of the guys in the church lowered his back like this, and Matt put his nub up on his back. And the other two guys had him underneath the shoulders, and they just lifted him to me. And I'm like, come to Papa. Here we go. Okay. And he, and he literally comes in, and the water's splashing everywhere. And he's holding on to me, and he's like, am I okay? I'm like, am I okay? That's the question, right? And, 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 and I, I look at him, and I got him literally in a hug. We hadn't even baptized yet. But we're both soaking wet. I'm just holding him there. And I look at him, and he just start, and tears start streaming down my, his face. I said, you good? He goes, look out there. And I turn around, and I see his parents just standing up, just crying. See, grandparent, he can barely walk, stand up, start crying. And I said, what you thinking right now, buddy? He goes, that stupid wall in the baptistry tank was my last hurdle to get to this point. So much has tried to keep me out of these waters, but nothing's keeping me out anymore. And that day, as soon as he got there and he's on one leg, it hit me. How am I going to get him back up? <laughs> okay, I kept going, I don't know. And, uh, anyway... The Lord was gracious and sustaining, and some of my church members think that I body uh, press a whole lot and used to work as a wrestler by the way that I did, bring him down and then bring him back up, and we celebrate that together in this wonderful moment, and as soon as he came up, he said, Pastor Trav, I'm not going to waste my story. I'm not going to waste my story. Everyone gave up on me. I gave up on myself, but Christ wouldn't let me go. Tonight, students, are you sinking in some stuff of which you know you need help out of? Other people giving up on you? They gave up on me. I gave up on myself numerous times. But all Christ needs to hear right here and right now is this. Save me. Help me. And he's going to plunge in the waters tonight and save you. So if that's your prayer, I'm asking right now that we be sensitive to what the Spirit is doing so that you can respond. Let's bow to him right now in prayer.